It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These words of our Lord from the Gospel according to St. John in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. One of the most mysterious dichotomies, you might call it, or you might even say paradoxes or dualities of human life, is the pairing of body and spirit. In the ancient world, the most common understanding prevalent among human societies was something like this, that the body is a kind of betrayal of that reality that you and I truly are, that of a spirit or a form. I mean... Imagine it for a moment. It's like, well, you know, bodies are kind of gross, right? So it must be that the spirit is greater or the real thing. Today, this can be seen as a deep spiritual yearning that is ambivalent about the body or maybe something like this. Maybe I'll play it a little bit fast and loose with my body because after all, I'm just a spirit trapped in a body. Unless some of you think you are free of this, maybe another definition would be something like the vice of cold intellectualism. Either way, the Gnostic believes that knowledge is of the essence, spirit is of the essence, the body of no importance. The other end of the spectrum claims that the only things which can truly be known are those things that I can touch and taste and see. In what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, the whole host of spiritual things are pushed out of view. Angels, demons, even God himself. This is the cold empiricism of the scientist, the political policy of the utopian. The truth is that even though you and I are here this morning, we are inescapably secular. We live life taking this option over and over again. It is our fundamental posture. And I can prove that to you. How many of you, when the celebrant says, therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, think, there are a lot of dang angels in this place today? Very few. We are secular. But the Christian, and here I speak in ideals, must live in the utter bewilderment of this paradox. I am not a mere body. I am also not a spirit with a more or less insignificant body. A meat suit, you might say. I am a totality of body and spirit. By the way, you know, there's this terrible quote flying around that's been attributed to C.S. Lewis, and it might be the most slanderous misquoting of C.S. Lewis ever, in which he doesn't say, but says, you have a soul, you are, you, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. Well, let me just say, he would have never said this because he knows what it is. False. Maybe even heresy. Why must this be? Well, the answer comes from the very understanding that the church has always had of the person of Jesus Christ. Not that he is God with a more or less meaningless body, or merely the appearance of a body, or that he is a human being who is so exceptionally gifted and talented, gifted with the Spirit of God, 
but the very teaching of the hypostatic union. That Jesus Christ is a personal union of God and man, humanity coming from us, and His eternal deity, eternally begotten of the Father. Lurking behind every false understanding of anthropology, be it ancient or modern, is a heresy that overthrows the very truth of the Gospel. So it is, to say the least, confusing to hear from Jesus this morning, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Jesus? Help me out. To get to the very bottom of this, we have to go deeper into Scripture, to the very beginning of human life. It is in the second chapter of Genesis that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Contrary to this breath being the Holy Spirit, it is clear that the breath belongs to man. It is a created thing. Adam is raised from the mire by the gift of life, by the gift of breath. But as we read in the end of the verse, the man became a living creature. This is life of a different sort. In fact, the word here for creature is actually something closer to soul or passion or desire. The man became a living soul. This living being is not like the other creatures. Basil the Great says that from the very beginning of human life, God gives human beings a share of his own grace, a share of his own life, in order that he might recognize likeness through likeness. There's something about our bodily life, our biological life, what in Greek we could call bios, that shows us that that is not all there is. We are to recognize a greater life. In other words, God recognizes in human life something which cannot be seen. It is hidden, invisible, and yet very, very real. And we recognize in human life something which cannot be seen either. I was telling the early congregation this, and I, I didn't really quite put it right, but, but when I was in kindergarten, we watched uh, space shuttle launches. And in 1985... The teacher put on the TV, and we watched as the Challenger exploded in midair. We saw that all the hope that NASA and science put in front of us was not all it was cracked up to be. There is another kind of life. And this is not the same kind of life that is put into the flesh. It is a component of human life that we might simply call spiritual. Another way of putting this is that God creates both the inner person and the outer person. Gregory of Nyssa says this, God made the inner person, he molded the outer. Molding is suitable for clay, but making is fitting for an image. So on the one hand, he molded flesh, but on the other, he made the soul. And this brings us back to this paradoxical understanding of human nature that is opposed to being fleshly or spiritual or even mostly or flesh or mostly spirit. The human person is both one visible, the other invisible, but both created. 
And so, what is Jesus saying when he says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Well, first we must say that Jesus is here speaking of a life which is unseen. To use the Greek word, it's the zoe kind of life, not the bios kind of life. I have said before that if you want the key to understanding any component of the Gospel of John, you simply have to go back to the beginning, namely to the prologue. I mean, if you ever really want to get a grip on the Gospel of John, just like keep the prologue in front of you and read the text. It's the key to the whole thing. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines on the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John is not here speaking of physical darkness, the darkness of night. Night does not cease on the coming of the divine Logos into the world. What is overcome is the darkness which lays heavy upon the soul of every human person. The darkness of sin and ignorance. A spiritual darkness. And John says that for those who believe, for those who receive the Word of God, God gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you can catch this in what happens to the disciples following today's text, or in the midst of in the end of today's text. Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Even as there were other disciples for whom his sayings were too difficult. This unseen life is the life of the soul that has been adopted into the family of God. Born of God. Born of the Spirit. It is so often the case, we don't quite get adoption today unless you were adopted but even more so if you were once orphaned. Orphans understand adoption. The apostles in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John received the gift of the Holy Spirit by the very breath of Jesus. They become His. They become His own. And still today in some baptismal liturgies, the priest will blow on the face of the newly baptized. You may have actually seen this at Christ Church when we put that baby all the way under the water and you're horrified and then right in their face and they go, oh, oh good, I'm I'm out of the water now, I can breathe. And like all good liturgies, there's both the seen part and the unseen part. What is seen is a child taking their first breath after having been nearly drowned. What is unseen is a child taking their first breath as a child of God. Well, we should say that the life in the body is a real life worth protecting, worth defending, worth going to the doctor once a year for that pesky physical. We should say even more that a life that is merely bodily is not actually even human. We should say that life in the body with a living soul is human. And we should say that emphatically. But is it redeemed? Is it enlightened? Is it graced with the benefits of adoption by grace? Is this human life a child of God? Without new life, 
such as Jesus alone can give, we should say emphatically, no. Second, we must not be so quick to take this exchange with the disciples out of context. It is, after all, the end of John chapter 6 with its bread of life discourse. This discourse follows Jesus' rendering of the feeding of the 5,000 at the beginning of the chapter. And you remember the story, but John puts a little bit of a different take on it. They gather up the fragments, 12 baskets full, and they've all eaten, they're all well fed, and what do they do? They demand to make Jesus their king by force. By force. Amazing how that happens. Because they were hungry an hour before and are hungry no more, they demand that Jesus become king. And you and I know that this is true about human beings. At the end of the day, we human beings demand bread more than any other thing. Something happens to me when I become hungry. I become an irrational monster. And if you give me a half a pound of brisket, some bread and some sauce and some pickles, you're my king. Hunger turns our bodies into our masters. We become captive to what we can see, captive to what we can feel. The only problem is that sometimes what we see with our own eyes is deceptive, and sometimes what we feel in our bodies is deceptive. And Jesus knows this, and he says to the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is put in a similar way to the church today. Why haven't you Christians solved global hunger yet? You've had 2,000 years. And I would say, it's a good question. But it's not the central question. It's not the central question because there is a hunger much deeper than a hunger for food. It is the hunger of the soul that wanders in darkness. It is the hunger of the soul that wanders in sin. It is the hunger of the soul that seeks out true life, but does so apart from God. This is an orphaned soul. It is barely human. And it is thus that Jesus speaks to the disciples of food that endures to eternal life. Food which the Son of Man will give, namely Himself. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. And this cannot be taken in a literal manner. I still thirst. I still hunger. I still get tired. I still have sickness. I still have psychiatric problems. I still get depressed. I still worry that I'll get so sick that I can't continue. I've told this to some of you, but my, my daily fear, just to be really you know, vulnerable with you, my daily fear is that I'll lose my mind. 
that I'll just lose it. And I won't have any ability to speak or talk or any of those things. And, and I'll just, I'll just have to be there. I, that, that's my, I, it's my, that's, that's a hell to me. And I worry about it. But Jesus isn't talking about that kind of life today. What kicks off this dispute in the gospel reading today? Some say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus had said, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he doubles down on his fleshly body and fleshly blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And this is where I must recall you back to what was said before. If we wish to know the true meaning of human life, we see it in Jesus. His flesh is no abstraction surrounding a truly spiritual life. There is no contradiction. Jesus is seen by the disciples, and in seeing Jesus, they see God. He is also unseen. He is man and He is God. And we should say this, that Jesus is the very ideal, the very end of human life. I mean, I'll just kind of put this all in front of you today, which is that we profess in the creeds a belief in the resurrection of the body. This means that our future is not disembodied. Our future is fully embodied. I never tired of saying this. I never tire of saying this, but uh, my dear friend of blessed memory, Jim Packer, would often say, to be made in the image of God means that you were made to be like Jesus. And this is why Jesus talks about today in this gospel reading about the ascension, this taking up of human flesh to the Father. You and I were made to be like Jesus. But how, I would ask, can you become who Jesus is without participation in his body? How can you become like Jesus if you have no fellowship with his body, the church? No fellowship in his communion. And this is the very point. I'm going to kind of step back here just a second. I mean, Lots of people will read John 6 and they'll be like, what is Jesus saying about the Eucharist? Like, slow down. Just slow down. You're going way too fast. Jesus is talking about himself first and foremost. Let's just be clear about that. But he's also talking about the Eucharist. Why? Because he's talking about himself. And this is the very point where Anglican Eucharistic theology comes to the fore. We Anglicans hold that the Eucharist is not physical blood and physical flesh veiled behind the appearance of accidents of bread and wine, but rather that the Eucharist is patterned after the personal union in Christ of his human and divine natures, such that we can say that the Eucharist is not merely bread or merely food that we can have and be full on. I mean, that's laughable given what we pass out for communion. But we can't say that any more than we can say that the Eucharist is merely 
the body of Jesus. No, we can say with Scripture that it is participation in the body and blood of Jesus. A participation in the very life of Jesus Christ, which is a participation in the very life of God. Not after a fleshly manner, but after a spiritual manner. This is the meaning of a sacrament. The great Anglican divine Lancelot Andrews, who, by the way, was the chair of the committee that did the King James translation, says that the Eucharist is precisely this, a personal union of Jesus Christ, who is unseen with the eyes to that which is seen. To say that it is spiritual is no negation of the physical. It is only to say with Jesus that it is the Spirit that gives life. And for this reason, you'll note that at each and every Eucharist, the celebrant invokes the Holy Spirit upon the Eucharistic gifts, saying, we ask you to bless and sanctify with your word and Holy Spirit these gifts of bread and wine, that we receiving them according to your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. In fact, if I may be permitted one final point, this epiclesis, that's what this calling down of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts is, this invocation is akin to the invocation of the Holy Spirit upon husband and wife in the marriage rite. I mean, this is something that happens. The Holy Spirit is invoked, is invoked upon the couple in this act of blessing. Their union is unapologetically physical. Listen, I love, I love officiating weddings, but I'm always aware that, that there's something else that has to happen later on that day, or maybe later on that week. The two becoming one flesh in a physical sense. Indeed, without a sexual union, it is not a marriage. But this is different from saying that their union is merely physical or merely sexual. No. By calling down the blessing and grace of the Holy Spirit in this sacrament, what is natural becomes supernatural. The spouses receive the Holy Spirit as the communion of love of Christ and the church. The Holy Spirit is the seal of their covenant, the ever available source of their love and the strength to renew their fidelity. What does this show us but the relationship between Christ and his church of which Paul speaks in Ephesians today? That the Holy Spirit is the seal of our covenant with God. Or rather, the seal of the covenant that God has made with us. The ever-available source of our love, the ever-available source of our strength, the ever-available source to renew fidelity. Meaning simply that marriage shows forth the joining of the body of Christ, the church, to, well, the body of Christ. <laughs> it's a wonderful, fun wordplay game, you know, is that the body of Christ is the body of Christ is the body of Christ, and which body of Christ is it? <laughs> It's like this. The church becomes by grace what she is not by nature. 
And in true nuptial fashion, she receives everything that the Lord is. Everything. Every time a man and woman get married, they exchange everything that they have. Everything. Not just their bank accounts, not just their titles to cars, not just their debts, but everything. When I married Ella 16 years ago, everything that I have became hers and everything that she had became ours. Thankfully, we had nothing. But this is at the heart of it, yes? It is at the very heart of the Gospel that everything that belongs to God has been given to you and to me. That is the riches of which Paul speaks in Ephesians. Everything. Everything. This is the meaning of adoption. We become everything. We receive everything that God is. And this if I may speak Eucharistically about it, is what we have come together for today. To renew the body of Christ by participation in His body by the Holy Spirit. To, as Augustine says, eat what we become and become what we are. Namely, the body of Christ. And it is through this that we gain what we did not have by nature that which we could only have as a primary grace, but never as a final one. Union with the One through whom we were made. True life. Life as children of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.